0: Chapter Thirty of Silas Strong, Emperor of the Woods, by Irving Batchelor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty. Strong was chopping and hewing on his birch log until late bedtime. He was like Noah, getting ready for the destruction of the world. Having finished, he took his lantern off a branch beside him and surveyed a singular device. He called it a boat-jumper, and, inspired by a thought of the children, whispered to himself, "'Uncle Silas is improving.' It was a mere shell about two inches thick, flat on the bottom, and sheared on one side, canoe-fashion. It would serve as a jumper, a rough sled-like conveyance, on the ground and as a boat on the rivers. It would carry Synth and the children with tents, blankets, provisions, and bedding enough to last until he could return for more. He hurried to camp and helped his sister with the packing. When a dozen great bundles lay on the floor, ready for removal, Synth went to bed. But the tireless emperor had more work to do. He made two seats, with backrests upon each, for the boat jumper— and fastened a whiffle tree to the bow end of the same. On its stern he put two handles, like those of a plow, so that he might lay hold of them and steady the jumper in rough places. Next morning, a little before sunrise, he made off on the trail to Pitkin. At the general store and post office in that hamlet he received a letter. It was from the forest fish and game commissioner, who thus addressed him, "'Dear Mr. Strong, I hear that timber thieves and deer-slayers are operating on state land near Rainbow Lake. I learn also that you are about to leave your camp at Lost River. If that is true, I wish you would accept an appointment as deputy for that district, and go at once and do what you can to protect the Valley of Rainbow. The salary would be five hundred dollars.' A letter just received informs me that Red MacDonald is there with dogs. If you could deliver him into custody, you would be a public benefactor, but I warn you that he is a desperate man. Please let me hear from you immediately. This gave Strong a new and grateful sense of being ahead. Before leaving the post office, he penned his acceptance of the offer, then he proceeded to the home of Annette and found her gone for the day. He sat down at the dinner table and wrote these lines, with all the deliberation their significance merited. Dear lady, in Ogdensburg and anxious to move, Patrick can snake me out. Meet me at Benson Falls Friday, if possible, and you'll hear some talkin' done by yours hoping for better times. S. Strong p s strong's ahead meanwhile Synth was in trouble young mr migley had come with a gang of sawyers and axemen to dethrone the emperor and take possession he had his customary get off the earth air about him an air that often accompanies the title to vast acreage he found only Synth and the children and summarily ordered them to leave then she gave him what she called a piece of her mind. It was a good-sized piece, all truth and just measure. While the furniture was being thrown out of doors, she got ready to go. In the heart of Synth indignation had supplanted sorrow. It was in her countenance and the vigor of her footfall, and in the way that she filled and closed and handled her satchel. Some of the brawny woodsmen stood looking as she and the children came out of doors, a solemn-faced little company. Something from the hearts of the men made Synth touch her eyes with her handkerchief. Then a curious thing happened. Some of the lumberjacks dropped their saws and axes. Those people could forgive much in a good fellow, they could forgive almost any infamy, it would seem, but the stony heart. Let one do a mean thing and rouse their quick sympathies a little, and their oaths were as a deadly, fateful curse upon him. They never forgot the tear of symphony or the wrath of resentment. The sorrow of the weak now seemed to touch the hearts of the strong. The children, seeing the tears of their aunt as she turned for a last look at her home followed slowly with an air of great dejection then a strange pathos rose out of their littleness and an ancient law seemed to be writ upon the faces of the men whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea a murmur of disapproval arose, and suddenly one voice blared a sacred name coupled and qualified with curious adjectives, jumped up, livin', sufferin', eternal, as if it would be most explicit. "'Boys?' the voice added. "'I can't see no woman nor no children treated that way.' A man took the satchel out of Synth's hand. "'You stay here,' said he. We won't stand for this." Another burly woodsman had lifted little Sue in his arms. "'I'm going down the trail to wait for Silas,' said Synth, brokenly. She put out her hand to take the satchel. "'We'll carry it and the children, too,' said the woodsman, whose voice, which had been harsh and profane, now had a touch of gentleness. They made their way down the trail in silence. "'He'd better try to be a statesman,' said one of the escort. "'He ain't fit to be a bull-cook.' They passed a second gang with horses and a big jumper bearing supplies for the camp. The emperor had surrendered. The green hills were taken. Half a mile or so from the camp, Synth halted. "'I'll wait here, thank you,' said she. With offers of assistance, the men left them and returned. All through the night, Synth had been thinking of their new trouble and was in a way prepared for the worst. But now, as she was leaving forever the old familiar trees and the still water, she sat down for a while and covered her face. Already the saws had begun their work. She could hear them gnawing and hissing and the shouts and axes of the woodsmen, socky and sue came near their aunt and stood looking at her their cheeks tear-stained their sympathy now and then shaking them with half-suppressed sobs the reason for their departure and for the coming of the woodsman they were not able to understand zeb lay lolling on his stomach bored but like his master hoping for better times aunt Cynthia, you fraid "'Sue ventured to ask, and her doll hung limp from her right hand. "'Socky felt his sword and looked up into the face of his aunt. "'Where are we goin?' he asked with another silent sob. "'Pon my soul, I don't know,' Synth answered wearily. "'Don't you be afraid,' he said, waving his sword manfully." Synth took her knitting out of the satchel and sat down comfortably on a bed of leaves. Zeb began to growl and run around them in a circle, like the cheerful jester that he was. It seemed as if he were trying to remind them that, after all, the situation was not hopeless. He continued his gyrations until Socky and Sue joined him. Soon the big trees began falling and their thunder and the hoots of the briarmen echoed far. The children came to their aunt. "'What's that?' they asked, with awe in their faces. "'The trees,' Synth answered solemnly. "'They're a-mowing of em down.' In a moment, thinking of the young man who had heartlessly put her out, she added, "'I guess he'll find he's hurt himself more than he has us.' Who? socky asked. That me hopper. The children turned with a look of interest. What's a meehopper Socky asked. Synth sat looking thoughtfully at her knitting. He steals folks' albums, said Sue confidently, and he can run like a deer. Ain't a bit like a deer, Synth responded. He can't go nowhere but downhill. THAT'S WHY YOU ALWAYS FIND HIM IN LOW PLACES, AND HE'S SO AFRAID FOLKS WON'T SEE HIM THAT HE SWEARS AND TALKS ABOUT HIMSELF." SUE LOOKED AT HER AUNT AS IF SHE THOUGHT HER A WOMAN OF WONDERFUL PARTS. HE BETTER LOOK OUT FOR THE SUNDAY MAN, Synth CONTINUED. WHO'S THE SUNDAY MAN? THEY BOTH ASKED. HE'S A WONDERFUL HUNTER AND HE CATCHES ALL THE WICKED FOLKS. Synth answered, and them that swears, he makes em into me-hoppers, and them that does cruel things, he turns their hearts into stones, and them that steals, he takes away everything they have, and if anybody lies, he makes a fool of them, so they believe their own stories, and he takes and marks the face of every one he catches, so if you look sharp, you can always tell em IN A MOMENT THEY HEARD SOMEONE COMING DOWN THE TRAIL. IT WAS YOUNG MR. MIGLEY WHO SUDDENLY HAD FOUND HIMSELF IN THE MIDST OF A SMALL REBELLION. HALF HIS MEN HAD THREATENED TO HASTE HIS TURKEY UNLESS HE BROUGHT BACK THE WOMAN AND THE KIDS. IT WAS NOT THEIR THREAT OF QUITTING THAT WORRIED HIM, HOWEVER. IT WAS A CONSEQUENCE MORE REMOTE AND DECISIVE. "'Miss Strong, I WAS HOT UNDER THE COLLAR,' HE BEGAN. I DIDN'T MEAN TO PUT YOU OUT. I WANT YOU TO COME BACK AND STAY AS LONG AS YOU LIKE. WE CAN SPARE YOU ONE OF THE CABINS. NO, SIR, Synth ANSWERED CURTLY. ALL RIGHT, SAID HE. YOU'RE THE DOCTOR. IN A MOMENT SHE ASKED, WHAT YOU GONNA DO WITH THEM SICK FOLKS THAT'S CAMPED OVER AT ROBIN? I WON'T HURRY EM, SAID HE. "'But they'll have to get out before long.' "'It's a shame,' Synth answered. "'You ought to have consumption and see how you'd like it.' "'There are plenty of hotels east of here.' "'But they're poor folks and can't afford to pay board, even if they'd let em in, which they wouldn't.' "'I can't help it. We've got to get these logs down to the river before snow flies. It's business.' With him, that brief assertion was the end of many disputes. There were few that even dared question the authority of the old tyrant, whom Silas had called business. The young man began to walk away. Synth set a parting shot after him. "'It's business,' said she, "'to think of nobody but yourself.' It was long past midday when Silas came with the ox. He stood listening, his hands upon his hips, while Synth related the story of their leaving camp and of Migley's effort to bring them back. "'S-sot himself off,' said Strong with a smile. "You see The dethroned emperor turned suddenly and drew a line across the trail with the butt of his ox-whip. "'All to tow the scratch he demanded soberly. He led Synth and Sue forward and stopped them with their toes on the line. He motioned to Saki, who took his place by the others. Zeb sat in front of them. The boy seemed to wonder what was coming. His fingers were closed, but his thumb stood up straight according to their habit when the boy's heart was troubled. The "'Thumb's down,' Strong commanded." he surveyed his forces with an odd look of solemnity and playfulness. "'S. Strong has been appointed warden of Rainbow Valley,' said the exiled emperor. "'The forward march!' His command was followed by a brief appeal to the ox. "Pretty good luck!' Synth exclaimed with a look of satisfaction. "'But they's a lot of pirates over there. Got to look out for them.' "'They'll move,' said Strong, as if he had no worry about that. Slowly they went up the trail and soon re-entered Lost River Camp. The young lumberman saw them coming and went off into the woods. Some men who had been at work near gathered about the Emperor and offered to stand by him as long as he wished to remain. Strong shook his head. "'We won't g-go,' he stammered. He looked sadly at the fallen tree trunks, at the dooryard now full of brush. "'Don't ever want to see this place again,' he muttered. He brought the boat jumper into camp and loaded it. Then, with Synth on the bow seat and Socky and Sue behind her, they set out, the men cheering as they moved away. A clear space at the stern afforded room for the Emperor if he should wish to get aboard in crossing water, and an axe and paddle were stored on either side of it. Strong had tacked a notice on one of the trees, and it read as follows. S. Strong has moved to Rainbow Lake. The camp was now in the shadow of Long Ridge. Synth and the Emperor were silent. Bird songs that rang in the deep, shaded hall of the woods had a note of farewell in them. The children were laughing and chattering as Ox and Boat Jumper entered the unbroken forest. Zeb stood in front of the children, his forefeet on the gunwale, and seemed to complain of their progress. It was, in a way, historic that journey of the boat jumper that parting of the ancient wood and the last of its children. Their expedition carried about all that was left of the spirit of the pioneer, his ingenuity, his dauntless courage, his undying hope of better times. The hollow log, with its heart hewn out of it, groaning on its way to the sown land, suggested the fate of the forest now soon the lost river country would have roads instead of trails and its emperor would be a common millionaire the jumper and the woodsman had had their day slowly they pursued their way skirting thickets and going around fallen trees and stopping often to clear a passage strong followed gripping the handles that rose well above the stern of his odd craft and so he served as a rudder and support. An ox is able to go in soft footing, and they struck boldly across a broad swamp nearly three miles down the river shore. It was near sundown when they camped for the night far down the outlet of Catamount Pond. Strong put up a small tent and bottomed it with boughs while Synth was getting supper ready. Their work done, they sat before the campfire, and Synth told tales of the wilderness. Sile sang again the story of the Mellard bear, and also an odd bit of nonsuch which was, in part, a relic of old times. The first line of each stanza came out slowly and solemnly, while the second ran as fast as he could move his tongue. In his old memorandum book, he referred to it as the Snake Song, and it ran as follows. In a certain village, there did dwell a very fine gal, and I knew her well. Right tiddy diddy day, right tiddy diddy day, right tiddy diddy 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 oddy way. In a certain village, there did dwell a very fine gal, and I knew her well. Right tiddy diddy day, right tiddy diddy day. Right tiddy itty itty itty, itty odd a day, and one fine morning she did go down to the meadow for to mow, and the very first thing that she did feel was a big black snake a biting of her heel, and her heel wasn't bigger than a robin's egg, and the first she knew he swallowed up her leg, and when he was trying for to carry her off, she wiggled her toes till she made him cough. And that did end the serpent's fun, for he coughed her up, and away she run. Strong, whittled as he sang, and soon presented the girl with a straight rod of yellow osier, upon which he had carved the brief legend, "Sue, her snake stick." If she held to that, he explained, no snake would be able to swallow her. "I want one too," said Saki. "'You m- mean a bear-stick,' Strong answered. "'Girls have to t- look out for s- snakes, and boys for b- bears.' They were all asleep on their bough beds before eight o'clock. At that hour, which Strong was wont to designate as just daylight, he was on his feet again. Whether early or late to bed, he was always awake before dawn. Some invisible watcher seemed to warn him of the coming of the light. He held to one of the ancient habits of the race, for he began every day by kneeling to start a fire. He bent his head low and brought his lips near it as if the flame were a sacred thing, and he its worshipper. For a time that morning he was careful not to disturb the others but having attended to patrick he hurried to call the children he hurried for fear that synth would forestall him he loved to wake and wait upon them and hear their chatter their confidence in his power over all perils had become a sweet and sacred sort of flattery in the view of silas he had too a curious delight in seeing and feeling their little bodies while he helped them to dress Somehow it had all made him think less of the pleasures of the wild country and more of Lady Anne. That some day of his laconic pledge was drawing nearer, and its light was in every hour of his life. The children were leading him out of the brotherhood of the forest into that of men. He lifted the sleeping boy in his arms and gently woke him. Zeb had followed and put his cold nose on the ear of Sue. Soon the children were up and the emperor kneeling before them, while his great hands awkwardly held a teenty pair of stockings. Synth awoke and jealously remarked, "'Huh, I should think you was plumb crazy about them air children.' Strong smiled and left them to her and began to prepare breakfast. Soon all were on their way again, heading for the lower valley of Lost River. They crossed two ridges and entered a wide swamp. There were many delays, for they encountered fallen trees which had to be cleared away with axe and lever, while here and there, Strong gave the ox a footing of corduroy. It was a warm day, and the children fell asleep after an hour or so. Synth, who had been tossed about until speech wearied her tongue and put it in some peril, sank into sighful resignation. The jumper had stopped. Strong had gone ahead to look out his way. Reaching higher ground, he saw man tracks and followed them to an old trail. Soon a piece of white paper pinned to a tree trunk caught his eye. He stopped to read this warning to sile strong you ain't going to find the rainbow country healthy place if you go there you'll get hung up by the heels i mean business the emperor took off his faded crown he scratched his head thoughtfully that message was probably inspired by some lawless man who had felt the authority of the woods lover and who wanted no more of it he had heard that Migley had four camps on the middle branch, between there and Rainbow, and that they were full of cutthroats. That was a word that stood for deerslayers and all daredevil men. Whoever had put this threat in the way of the emperor had probably heard of his appointment and was trying to scare him away. The offender might have been sent by Migley himself. "'Well, we'll see,' Strong muttered, with a stern look, as he returned to the boat jumper. Many had threatened him one time or another, but he never worried over that kind of thing. Today, as on many occasions, he kept his tongue sinless by keeping his mouth shut, and touching his discovery on the trail, said only the two words, "'We'll see,' and said them to himself." HE DIDN'T BELIEVE IN SPREADING TROUBLE. SLOWLY THEY MADE THEIR WAY TO A BEND IN LOST RIVER, FAR FROM THE OLD CAMP. AS THEY HALTED TO SEEK ENTRANCE TO THE WATER CHANNEL, STRONG CAME FORWARD AND POKED THE CHILDREN PLAYFULLY UNTIL THEY OPENED THEIR EYES. THEN HE PUT A HAND ON EITHER SHOULDER OF Synth AND GAVE HER A LITTLE SHAKE. HOW YOU FEELIN', HE ASKED. "'Ridiculous,' she answered, "'sittin' here in a holler-tree just as if we was family o' raccoons.' It was the most impatient remark she had made in many days. "'The better times,' said the emperor. He smiled and sat down to rest on the side of the boat jumper. He turned to the boy and asked hopefully, "'How about your Uncle Silas?' It had been rough, adventurous riding, but full of delight for the children. That morning their uncle had loomed into heroic and satisfactory proportions. Socky had long been thinking of the little silver compass master had given him one day, and which hung on a ribbon tied about his neck. He hoped they might be going where there would be other boys and girls. He had been considering how to give to his uncle's person a touch of grandeur and impressiveness fitting the story of the mellard bear and his power and skill as a hunter. Soberly he removed the ribbon from his neck and presented the shiny trinket to his uncle. "'Put that on your neck,' said he proudly. "'Well, what?' his uncle stammered. "'Christmas present,' said the boy with a serious look the emperor took off his faded crown he put the ribbon over his head so that the compass dangled on his breast there said Soki, that looks a little better in a moment with that prudence which always kept the last bridge between himself and happiness he added you can let me have it nights every night since it fell to his possession HE HAD GONE FORTH INTO THE LAND OF DREAMS WITH THAT COMPASS HELD FIRMLY IN HIS RIGHT HAND. HERE'S TWENTY-FIVE CENTS, SAID SUE, HOLDING OUT THE SACRED COIN WHICH HER NURSE HAD GIVEN HER, AND WHICH, ON HER WAY INTO THE FOREST, HAD BEEN SET ASIDE FOR A SACRIFICE TO THE GREAT MAN OF HER DREAMS. AT LAST THE TWO HAD ACCEPTED HIM, WITHOUT RESERVE, AS WORTHY OF ALL HONOR. They could still wish for more in the way of personal grandeur, supplied in part by the glittering compass. But something in him had satisfied their heart, if not their eyes. He was again their sublime, their wonderful emperor. You better keep it. You're going to buy an album for Aunt Cynthia, the boy warned her. Her little hand closed halfway on the silver. It wavered and fell in her lap. She seemed to weigh the coin between her thumb and finger. She looked from the man to the woman. Saki saw her dilemma and felt for her. I'll get her an album myself, he proposed. In that world of magic where he lived, nothing could discourage his faith and generosity. Their uncle lifted them in his arms and held them against his breast without speaking. "'You've squeezed them children till they're black in the face,' said Synth, who now stood near him with a look of impatience. She took them out of his arms and held them closer, if possible, than he had done. At the edge of the stream he shouted, "'All board!' The others took their seats, and the emperor sat in the stern with his paddle. Socky faced him so that he could see the compass— he often asked proudly, "'Which way we goin?' and Strong would look at the compass and promptly return the information. "'South by east.' The river ran shallow for more than a mile in the direction of their travel. Patrick hauled them slowly down the edge of the current. Strong steadied and steered with his paddle as they crept along, bumping over stones and grinding over gravel until, at a sloping sandy beach on the farther shore, they mounted the bank and headed across Huckleberry Plain. Noontime had passed when they left the hot plain. They threaded a narrow ridge of tamaracks and entered thick woods again. At a noisy little stream nearby, they stopped for dinner. Strong caught some trout and built a fire and fried them and made coffee. Synth spread the dishes and brought sandwiches and cheese, and a big frosted cake, and a can of preserved berries from the boat jumper. They sat down to the reward of honest hunger where the pure cool air and the sylvan scene and the sound of flowing water were more than meat to them, if that were possible. Having eaten, they rose and pressed on with a happy sense of refreshment a thought of it was to brighten many a less cheerful hour half a mile from their camping place they found a smooth trail which led across level country to the middle branch socky and sue were again fast asleep on the bottom of the boat jumper long before they reached the river when they halted near its bank a broad stream of deep slow water lay before them Strong unhitched the ox and led him along shore, until he came to rapids, where, half a mile below, the river took its long rocky slope to lower country. There he tethered his ox and returned to fetch the others. He launched his boat jumper and got aboard and paddled carefully downstream. Having doubled a point, they came in sight of a slim boy who stood by the water's edge, aiming an ancient long-barreled gun. His head, which rested against the breech, seemed, as the emperor reported, about the size of a Pippin. "'E, look out!' Strong shouted, as the boy lowered his gun to regard the travelers with an expression of deep concern. "'See any mush-rats?' the boy asked eagerly. No, who are you? Joe Henyon. Strong had heard of old Henyon, who was known familiarly as Mushrat Bill. For years Bill had haunted the middle branch. Where do you live? Yonder, said the boy, pointing downstream as he ran ahead of them. Presently they came to an old cabin near the water's edge with a small clearing around it. A woman wearing a short skirt and shaker bonnet stood on one leg looking down at them. Children were rushing out of the cabin door. "'My land! Where's her other leg?' Synth mused. The emperor looked thoughtfully at the strange woman. "'Folks are like cranes over in this c- country,' Strong answered. "'Always rest on one leg.' He drove his bow on a sloping, sandy beach. The woman hopped into the cabin door. Her many children hurried to the landing. A man with head and feet bare followed them. An old undershirt, one suspender, and a tattered pair of overalls partly covered his body. He walked slowly towards the shore. He was the famous trapper of the middle branch. For far to rainbow to trail?' Strong inquired of him. The latter put his hand to his ear and said, "'What?' Strong repeated his query in a much louder voice. "'Fur ain't very thick,' the stranger answered. Strong perceived that the man was very deaf and also that he was devoted to one idea. "'The big family,' he shouted as he began to push off the trapper with his hand to his ear and still looking a bit doubtful answered ain't runnin very big this year thereafter the word "mushrats" in the vocabulary of strong stood for unworthy devotion to a single purpose downstream a little ox took his place again at the bow of the boat jumper they struck off into thick woods, reaching far and wide on the acres of Uncle Sam. A mile or so inland, they came to Rainbow Trail, and thereafter followed it. Timber thieves had been cutting big pines and spruces, and had left a slash on either side of the trail. The travelers dipped down across the edge of a wide valley, and after climbing again were in the midst of burned ground on the top of a high ridge below them they could see rainbow lake and the undulating canopy of a great two-storied forest reaching to hazy distances mighty towers of spruce and pine and hemlock rose into the sunlit upper heavens it was growing dusk when below them and well off the trail they saw a column of smoke rising. They halted, and Strong stood, gazing. The smoke grew in volume, and he made off down the side of the ridge. He came in sight of the fire and stopped. Someone had fled through thickets of young spruce, and Zeb was pursuing him. Strong looked off in the gloomy forest and shouted a fierce oath at its invisible enemy. Near him, flames were leaping above a fallen top and running in tiny jets over dry duff like the waste of a fountain. Swiftly, strong-cut branches of green birch and began to lay about him. He stopped the flames and then dug with his hatchet until he struck sand. He scooped it into his hat and soon smothered the cinders. HIS FACE HAD A TROUBLED EXPRESSION AS HE RETURNED TO THE BOAT-JUMPER. "'Who you been yelling at?' Synth asked. "'Careless cuss,' he answered evasively. Saki wore a look of indignation. He glibly repeated the oath which he had heard his uncle use. "'Hush! The Sunday man'll catch you,' Synth answered severely." Strong gave a whistle of surprise. "'Uncle Silas ain't afraid of no Sunday man,' Socky guessed. "'Yes, I be. Could kill me with the s- snap of his finger,' Strong declared. Socky trembled as he thought of that one inhabitant of the earth who was greater than his uncle Silas, and said no more. "'See here, boy.' said Strong as he put his finger under Socky's chin and raised his head a little. "'I won't never swear again if you won't.' He held out his great hand and Socky took it. "'You agree?' Socky nodded with a serious look, and so it happened that Silas became the master of his own tongue. He had boiled over for the last time, so he thought. THE OLD HABIT WHICH HAD GROWN OUT OF A THOUSAND TRIALS AND DIFFICULTIES MUST GIVE WAY, AND HENCEFORTH HE WOULD BE EMPEROR OF HIS OWN SPIRIT. AS TO THE FIRE AND THE MAN WHO HAD FLED BEFORE HIM, STRONG WAS PERPLEXED, BUT KEPT HIS OWN counsel. HE KNEW THAT THE LAW PERMITTED LUMBERMEN TO ENTER BURNED LANDS ON THE STATE PRESERVE AND TAKE ALL TIMBER WHICH FIRE HAD DAMAGED. A fire which might only have scorched the trunks while it devoured the crowns above them gave a rich harvest to some lucky lumberman. Having gained access, he stripped the earth, helping himself to the living as well as the dead trees. Fire, therefore, had become a source of profit wherein lay the temptation to kindle it. Silas Strong knew that his land of refuge was doomed that the forerunner of its desolation was even then hiding somewhere in the near dusky woods. He thought of the peril after a dry summer. The mold of the forest would burn like tinder. The dethroned emperor reached the shore of Rainbow, put up a tent, and helped to get supper ready. After supper he lay down to rest in the firelight and told the children about the great bear and the panther bird. Synth, weary after that long day of travel, had gone to sleep. After an hour or so, Strong rose and looked down at her. Shh, "'Shh, don't wake her,' he warned them. "'I'll put you to bed.' He helped them undress. "'You'll have to hear our prayers,' Socky whispered. Strong nodded. He sat on a box and they knelt between his knees, AND HE PUT HIS HANDS ON THEIR HEADS AND BOWED HIS OWN. WHEN THEY HAD FINISHED, HE BENT LOWER AND DICTATED THIS BRIEF KIND OF postscript: AND KEEP US FROM ALL TO DANGER THIS NIGHT. THEY REPEATED THE WORDS WITH NO SUSPICION OF WHAT LAY BEHIND THEM. THEN SOCKY WHISPERED, SAY SOMETHING ABOUT THE SUNDAY MAN. AND KEEP THE SUNDAY MAN AWAY, STRONG ADDED. They repeated the words, and then, as if his heart were still unsatisfied, Saki added these, "'And please take care of my Uncle Silas.' The Emperor lay thinking long after his weary companions had gone to sleep. He thought of that angry outcry, and his heart smote him. He thought of the danger. Perhaps, after all, they would not dare to burn the woods now." but Strong resolved to keep awake and be ready for trouble if it came. By and by he lighted a lantern and wrote in his old memorandum book as follows. Strong used to say profanity does more harm when you keep it in than when you let it naturally drain off, but among children it's a-catching as the measles. Sounds like thunder when it comes out of a boy's mouth, AND HITS LIKE CHAIN LIGHTNING. LONG BEFORE MIDNIGHT RAIN BEGAN TO FALL. STRONG ROSE AND WENT OUT UNDER THE TREES AND LIFTED HIS FACE AND HANDS, IN A PICTURESQUE AND priestlike ATTITUDE, TO FEEL THE GRATEFUL DROPS, AND WHISPERED, THANK GOD. IT WAS A GENTLE SHOWER, BUT AN HOUR OF IT WOULD BE ENOUGH. HE WENT BACK TO HIS BED AND LAY LISTENING. The faded leaves that still clung in the maple tops above them rattled like a thousand tambourines. After an hour of the grateful downpour, Strong's fear abated, and he let go and sank into deep slumber. Almost the last furrow in the old sod of his character had been turned. End of chapter 30